Hey, everyone, just as a heads up, this week's episode is a rebroadcast of my interview with Nunana Naomi from 2021. But next week, we'll be back with brand new episodes. And while you're here, don't forget to stop by, drop us a review, check out the newsletter, or definitely share an episode that you think others need to hear. You know, when I bring people on this podcast, I, full disclosure, and I'm full of always disclosures because I always have these sidebars. I like to bring up people who I think have a really interesting story to tell and, and stories that we don't necessarily hear all the time. And so that's why I'm really pumped about our latest guests, because I, I already know that there's some similarities in our stories. And of course they diverge because we are different people, but I am, I'm excited for, Nunana to be here today because first of all, I think at this point you might be the first black male TCK I've had on the show. Um, I've had, I have had two, no two, I've had more than two. I've had a couple of women. Interestingly enough, I think a good number of them were African, but I haven't had a black male TCK. I've had parents of TCKs and people who teach TCKs and support TCKs. But I think you check off a box that I haven't, that I haven't quite hit yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're here. So welcome to the chatter. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, excited to share my own perspective and uh, we'll see, you know, excited to, this for me is the highlight of my day, you know, to just kind of let my hair down, proverbially speaking, and, uh, you know, have a chat with you. So thank you. Man, I, you know, speaking of your day, where are you located? <laughs> I'm in the Netherlands right now. Yeah. So, yeah. Man, I, there was a period where I was going to the Netherlands all the time and then COVID. <laughs> yeah, COVID, yeah. So many COVID stories for all of us right now. Real kind of, uh, what's the word? FOMO. Yeah. Of like, you know, people are doing cool things in other part of the, of the world and can't just be there anymore. It's fortunate. What? Um, how long have you been in the Netherlands? Yeah, I've been here six years now. Oh, okay. So, wow, pretty good stint. Yeah, you know, enough to get restless. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right. As all, all, as all good high mobility folks are used to, after a while, yeah. you start thinking, is there something better on the other side of the fence? Right. And here's the thing: the Netherlands. So, I've been to, I've been to Amsterdam, of course. Interesting place. Not necessarily my favorite place in the Netherlands, but you know, and I think that's where all the tourists want to go first, right? If they've never been. And I've been to Leiden. I, I have a really good friend who lives in Leiden and Leiden is gorgeous and, and it's really chill. And then I've been to The Hague a couple of times as well. And cool. Well, I'm just outside of Leiden right now. Are you? So <laughs> yeah. Situate me. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, basically next time I'm in the Netherlands, I, I have a college yeah. friend who lives there. I've got to stop and visit because, uh, she works at the university out there and uh, it was, it was a nice surprise. Like I didn't, you know, it's like any country you, you kind of hear cities, but you don't know anything about it. And then you go there and you're like, okay, this is, this is, a, this is exciting. This is different and not what I expected. So, but uh, what, what landed you in, in Leiden or outside of it anyway? I work for the council of international schools, which is based in Leiden. Yeah. That's where the headquarters <laughs> are. And so, yeah, it was just a job. Uh, happened to, <laughs> you know, g 
get the position. And, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those things where before working at CIS, I worked for Calvin University, which is based in Michigan. Uh-huh. I worked yeah. in admissions. I was doing international recruitment, so definitely traveling the world and, you know, recruiting yeah. students. And I had been to certain events that CIS had put on, went on recruitment tours, uh, went to their PD conferences and things like that and thought, this would be a great job. You know, let me think about, you know, doing this, you know, let's see if this, yeah. you know, the, the opportunity came up. So I applied for the job and then like, didn't even get called, like just, you know, got rejected right away. You know, the standard email, the oh. standard email of like, you know, thanks for your interest, but you know, oh, you wait. didn't make it. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Then about six months later. Total plot yeah. twist. Oh my God. That's a plot twist. I thought you were going to be like, I yeah. got the email and I was going to come out here. Wait, yeah, they completely. Rejected not even like the call or anything. <laughs> um, and then maybe six months later or so, a similar position popped up from CIS. And I was like, ah, I'm probably not going to, I don't think I'm going to go for it. And my wife's like, you know, what do you have to lose? You know, just put your name in there and who knows, you know? So I'm like, again. okay, fine. I'll, I'll put my name in again. <laughs> probably nothing will happen. And that time went through the whole process and, you know, flew out for an interview and, and here I am. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, and I know, I know what CIS is. I think if you listen to this podcast at any point, you know, at some point I'll say I was an international school kid. So, so, so people probably already know, but what is, what is CIS for those who are not sure? Aware absolutely. Of the so we're a membership organization of about 1300 um, universities and international schools around the world. Um, one of the primary things that CIS yeah. does is accredit international schools. So for those schools who really want to have, to, to to kind of um, prove their worth, I guess, as an international school, to have that moniker, yeah, they really look for things like accreditation to give them that stamp of approval or legitimacy. So that's something that CIS does. But we also engage in a variety of other services um, and, and uh, ways to support schools. And so my specific role is in higher mm-hmm. education services. We connect schools with universities to support students who are yeah. transitioning from that school to university. So students who are looking for university study opportunities, you know, things like that. So we put on a variety of student recruitment events. We also do PD for school counselors and for admissions professionals in universities, um, things like that. So I think we kind of have to back up here because obviously, you know, you already mentioned doing recruitment with Calvin out in Michigan and, and, what you're doing right now. And so I kind of want to backtrack because I, I mentioned you being a third culture kid. So let's kind of start with your story because that probably leads to why there even was some interest in sort of this international position. Right. So where, where, where does your international story start? Yeah. So, uh, well, it begins in the United States. Um, I was born in New Jersey. Um, my father uh, is a pastor by profession. So he was happy. He happened to be studying for his, um, his PhD in theology at the time, uh, and my mom uh, came along, and uh, uh, yeah, I was born. Left when I was four years old, so I don't even remember the U.S. experience at all. Oh wow! Uh, and moved to Ghana, which is uh, where my parents are from. So uh, lived there for about three years, and then moved to Kenya, and lived there for about six years, then moved to Switzerland. Um, yeah, and uh, lived there for about. 
what, four and four years or so. Um, so my teenage years, basically secondary education, but I also went to boarding school in the UK because mm-hmm. it turns out private school in Switzerland is pretty expensive. So it was actually, <laughs> shocking. Uh, shocking. you know, shocking, you know. <laughs> so I ended up uh, going to boarding school in the UK and flying back six times a year to see family on the holidays and stuff like oh that. God. So that was my teenage experience. And then I went to Calvin for my undergrad because you right. being a U.S. citizen, I wanted to go back to the United States to study. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, ended up uh, ended up there. And once I studied, got my degree there, I decided to stay primarily out of love. You know, my uh, I met my wife at Calvin also. And so she had another year to go. And I was like, OK, we'll just wait a year and then we'll, you know, we'll Figure just <laughs> yeah, figure it out. We'll join the Peace Corps, I think, was our original plan. But then um, we realized halfway through that year that uh, even if you go as a couple into the Peace Corps, they still split you up. Like you can still, you, like you might be sent to, uh, you know, like, I don't know, Uzbekistan or somewhere. <laughs> right. And you think you're going to be in the same city, but actually you'll be in like different parts <laughs> of the country altogether. And we're like, okay, this is not the best plan. So in the meantime, I had just found this job. I fell into admissions, you know, there's mm-hmm. an open position and it was just what I was doing for the year. I thought, you know, just to jump in and see what happens. And I was doing domestic stuff. And then suddenly a position opened up with international recruitment. Mm-hmm. And obviously, given my background, yeah, I just was like, you know what? I can do this. I don't think there's anybody on staff who can do this better than me. So, you know, pick me to to assist with this work. And, you know, that ended up becoming where I felt like I fit. I really connected, of course, with the students. It was very fulfilling. And so we thought, why not? Why not just stick around? So we stayed and that turned into seven more years hmm. and then moved to the Netherlands right after that. So that's what brings me here. So with your... So with your dad as a pastor, was it that he was getting positions in these different countries or was it different organizations or parachurch organizations he was working with? Yes, he was. He had different uh, yeah, church related organizations that employed him. So when we were in Ghana, he was teaching seminary at um, Trinity Theological Seminary that's based there. And then he worked for the All Africa Conference of Churches, which is based in Nairobi, Kenya, and then worked for. Uh, what is now called the World Communion of Reformed Churches, used to be based in Geneva, uh, now based in Hanover, Germany. But yeah, that's what moved us around, which is always funny because every time people see my background, they're always, you know, there are always all kinds of other assumptions of, you know, why you would be in these places. (laughs) Like, oh, you know, maybe diplomat's kid or, you know, some other business connection or something. I'm like, yeah, he's a pastor. Okay, that's uh, different. <laughs> you know what it is, because essentially, and I, I think this term would apply to you, yeah. people don't necessarily think missionary kid, right? right. And, I mean, and I, I mean, to a certain degree, that is, I, I'm just saying that because you're PK, right? <laughs> but right. like, it, right. and then, right. and there's some element of not, yes. not necessarily early, but like, yeah. I, you know, I have a, I have a, a friend who we would have this discussion because her, her parents, Actually, they're, they're, she's Black American, left the U.S. and and went to Ghana actually to, to the mission fields. And and what was really what was really fascinating is how 
people just didn't know how to react. Not not Ghanaians, just in general. People just didn't know how to react that, <laughs> that they were moving as a missionary family because people hadn't conceptualized right. Black people moving because of faith and religion necessarily. Right. And so I can imagine that people, they hear this and like, oh, this sounds really global and sexy and all these things. And, <laughs> and then, you know, are thinking business or thinking development work or whatever. And then it's like, no, he was a pastor <laughs> and he had opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a, it's a, Certainly a very fascinating, you know, uh, I, I don't know anything different for me, obviously. Yeah, so this course. is just what life is. But yeah, it, even with the whole missionary kid versus not, you know, I always had this. It, it never really felt like I could my, I could put myself in the missionary mm-hmm. kid bucket. Sure. Because, you know, for in the case of my dad's profession, it was a lot of church relations and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on that kind of level, uh, ecumenical. Mm-hmm. kind of understanding. So bringing people together, groups of churches together, where often the stereotypical image of the mission field felt a bit more, to me, I'll use very derogatory terms, but, you know, very like saviorist, like, you know, you're yeah. going in and you're doing yeah. a service, you like you're giving, teaching people to build a well, or you're like, you know, right. um, yeah, teaching or, you know, whatever it might be in a way that for me almost brought the sense even throughout my childhood I even remember kind of a bit of a wanting to distance myself from that yeah because I always felt like this is I'm not sure if this really is the same maybe I put it a different way I think because the settings that I were was in you saw a lot of people hitting the mission field who were say white European or American background yeah, there was definitely that weird uh, kind of jarring feel of like, who are these folks who are coming in right. to come and you know like teach people a better way to be? But you know, have have we actually even talked to the people themselves to right. make sure uh, right you know, that they want yeah. it or they know and, and, or and is this really sustainable? And some of the yeah. folks that I engaged with in my own upbringing often came from more uh, like they would often have maybe the more affluent lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, and for me it's like okay or you could employ a local you know yeah. <laughs> and it, to do this thing and it might be a lot different so i think for me i've always had that wrestling internally mm-hmm. um with kind of the missionary lifestyle yeah bearing in mind that missionaries i know lots of missionaries and i respect them a lot um, <laughs> like, because caveat. they actually, yes. yeah, caveat, yeah caveat you all are wonderful <laughs> and 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 i know that it, there's a whole fundraising component. It's not just like, oh, you know, like right. I'm living a certain lifestyle. It actually takes a lot of work to to do this. And you're doing this for a calling. And to me, that's very noble. But it was more the image that I was confronted with as a child. Always yeah. felt like uh, almost a saviorist image. Um, and That's something I've always struggled with um, internally. No, I can totally see that. I think I think there is always this challenge when you are like a minority in a space and there there there's sort of this image of who comes in to kind of help, right? Who's coming in to come and save. And and I, I think I kind of wrestle with that just in general in the sense that it doesn't mean that people's intentions are not altruistic and they're not necessarily good, but 
sometimes too, we have to sort of step back and say, okay, is it, is it beneficial? And have we involved the people that we're trying to save in this discussion? And, and I, I think the other thing, just even thinking about even, you know, being a missionary kid and, 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 and it's funny because the more I think about it, I wouldn't even necessarily think the term necessarily applies to you as much in, as far as the stereotype in my mind, but often, you know, and I, and I grew up around a number of missionary kids those assignments tend to be more stagnant, right? So they tend to be in, in one spot, right? Because your family was was still very highly mobile. So not, and not that there aren't missionaries that aren't mobile, but typically, especially when they're doing international assignments, right? The folks that I knew, they're going to a place and they, they plan to be there for the long haul. Like if they're doing like Bible translation, right? It takes a while right. <laughs> to learn a language <laughs> that you do not speak, right? right. <laughs> and then translate... Right. Jonah, which is only like four chapters, right? <laughs> but it's like it'll be, but it's like it takes like ten years. Because I remember this. This has nothing to do with missionary work. But I was I remember talking to my sister and my and and my mom and my dad were of two different tribes, so they speak two different dialects. My sister speaks my mom's dialect. I because she grew up my grandmother. I unfortunately am a child who just doesn't. <laughs> but anyway, but we had this whole conversation about. um I'm thinking about Jonah, about whale, right? My sister kept being like, but the word whale does not exist in the dialect. And so I kept thinking to myself, <laughs> if someone, do how do you translate? <laughs> like, randomly, I was thinking to myself, like these people who translate the Bible, this word doesn't even exist in the dialect. So I don't know how you say, my sister's like, you just have to say like big fish. <laughs> and people would have to sort of imagine <laughs> what that big fish is. <laughs> and so... And so often I, you know, I think if, if you are, and, and they're missionaries who do all kinds of work, like do medical missions, they do whatever. But like, I just, I, I tend to know the people who are in an area for a long time. And so I think that even with your experience, you were in Samarius, but you, you, y'all kept it moving for a variety of really cool reasons. And so I, so I'm, I'm curious because you went to boarding school in the UK and that was for your secondary school years, correct? Yeah, correct. So how, how old were you when you were doing that? I was 12. Okay. Well, I moved, yeah, when I first uh, went into the school, I was 12. So, yeah, it was an interesting time <laughs> because, uh, you know, everyone has a different experience. But for me, I loved my boarding school experience. Uh -huh. And I think it has to do with just the timing worked out. Okay. So when I was in Kenya, it just so happened that the way my time in Kenya ended, I was so ready to leave. Um, okay. for some reason, the school thought I was really smart and convinced my parents that I needed to be jumped a year. So oh. that happened like at the end of my primary education, like I was supposed to go into like the top year of elementary, you know, yeah. primary school. Yeah. Instead of that, I went into the first year of secondary school on a completely different campus. Wow. And so I was like, not only the youngest of that group, I was the youngest of the youngest uh, right. kids. So, yeah, it was just really tough adjustment. And I thought, you know what, like, this is not the best experience for me right now. Right. And yeah, so my dad's like, oh, yeah, we have this opportunity to go to Switzerland. I'm like, yes. yes. You know, my, my dad actually tells me that, um, you know, we, we had prayed about it as a family. And uh, what, what did he say? He said, uh, you know, after the prayer, I said, no, you will. You, you're definitely going to get this job. You know, I, I'm sure of it. You know, you know, for my dad, he took that as like a divine, you know, like 
You were willing willing it. Because you need to get us out of here. (laughs) You were Um, willing it. So so he got us out. And then the other thing that happened for me was that I was reading Roald Dahl's autobiography, Mm -hmm. uh, Boy, and it's all about boarding school stories. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, they play so many pranks on each other and it's so fun. And oh, it'd be such a great adventure to be in a boarding school and all this. And my parents, you know, after we move, are like, you know, son, you know, we've been looking at all the private schools in Switzerland and, you know, uh, if you really, really want to go to private school, you know, like we'll try and we'll sacrifice or, or you could go to boarding school, send me to boarding school, you know, right away. I was like, yep, absolutely. I am ready to go. And so I kind of went in with this kind of expectation of like, it's going to be an adventure and all of this. So the timing worked out and I was ready with a positive mindset on it. And, and of course the school itself was a great community, you know, for me. So it worked out in the long run, and and I really enjoyed my years there. Before the boarding school, had you been in international schools, local schools, homeschool? What was your what was makeup? it? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, in Ghana, I think I did you know first grade at a public school, and then when we went to Kenya, it was a British system school. I always went to British schools, and so it was uh, it was a British school that had an Irish headmaster. So like the head of the school was from British Isles to look the part, you know, make it legit, I guess. Um, And then the rest of the teachers were mostly Kenyan or certainly all black. Um, And the the community, most of the students were, were, uh, were black students or either students from Kenya or from other uh, African countries. So I would say, I would call it kind of like a, yeah. A British patterned, yeah, um, no, I got you. you know, local school, and then and then the boarding school that you went to was it was what was the makeup? Yeah, was it like? and the makeup there was it was mostly British kids, but we did have some international students as well. You know, people from Hong Kong, people from mm-hmm. you know different parts of Europe, and so on that studied there. So there was a small kind of international contingent, but definitely very British. And for me, it was, I do, one thing I do remember about that transition was that I had moved from a place where it was like all these black kids and, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Mm -hmm. knowing who I am in my own skin and all of that Mm -hmm. to being for the first time in an experience of being kind of an underrepresented Mm -hmm. position and having to navigate that space and having to deal with you know, having to speak on behalf of your race, you know, in class, right. because people are like, you know, <laughs> right. hey, what do all the Africans think about whatever? I'm like, okay, <laughs> right. I don't know. You know, or like the kids being like, you know, oh, I heard the N-word and, you know, the song and, you know, hey, my N-word and like, whatever. And you're just oh like, oh, <laughs> How? And as, as a teenager, you know, you want to be like, you want to fit in, you don't want to. Yeah rock the boat so you're like so i I, yeah navigating those spaces and i often you know talk about how you know they they had this real love for the arts as well there Mm -hmm. about once a year there's a time in the uk where i think it's called last night at the proms where they kind of put on these patriotic songs and celebrate (laughs) britishness and all of this kind of stuff (laughs) okay and like i still have images of myself at that time you know, singing songs like Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. 
And it's just like, whoa. You know, like, hey, you know, a million people got taken from the shores of my country. You know, like, and so I had a lot of fun, you know, engaging in these dialogues with my student colleagues who thought Britain was like the best thing. The best thing they ever happened. And I'm like, you guys don't even know. Like, you've oppressed, like, half the world. Like, you know? <laughs> like, there's a Man. lot of stuff you guys need to know about your history. So Man. that was a lot of fun. You know, I, I grew up in a very, like, we talked politics a lot in my yeah. house, in, in my household growing up and all of this. So I just happened to always have the, these kind of debates and dialogues. But, like, but honestly... But honestly, if you grew up in an African, at least a West African household, I feel like politics, whether you want it or not, people have some thoughts, right? And 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 it is so funny this thing you, you're talking about Britishness because I, I, man, I recently had a conversation with someone and I just said, you, you, some of you do kind of have to reckon truly with your history, which is hard because if you're from a place, you're proud of it, you know, and especially what you're taught. But I'm like, bruh, there's a reason why we're all speaking English right now. <laughs> like, like when you're like, what's the, what was the impact on, on British imperialism on you? Uh, I'm speaking English. This should tell you, <laughs> this should tell you what the impact is. Yeah. And man, I got teenage years are so weird. I mean, let's just be honest. And, and you moved, you know, during what we would call junior high, which is like, I think a good time up through high school, but they are so weird. And I, mm-hmm. I'm wondering for you, and and you were kind of going in this direction, what did identity look like for you? Because for me, I had a similar kind of going the opposite way. So because you you were young when you left the U.S. So, you know, you're a toddler, you're a kindergartner, whatever, right? But not that you can't remember stuff, but, you know, you're still forming things. But I left a little bit older than you and went to Cameroon at 10. So been in the US. So I kind of known being a minority. (laughs) Then I went to the majority and then I came back. And so I'm curious for you, you know, your experiences, how did you start to sort of see your own identity, at least up until that point, or, you know, and especially as a third culture kid, which I don't, did you, by the way, did you even know the term when you were going through this? Definitely not when I was going through this. I think the okay. first time I encountered it was university. I was like, okay. oh, that explains That's the term. everything I'm trying about to... who I am. <laughs> because that would tell, because here, here's what I would say. Um, I, I graduated high school right at the cusp of when they started talking about the term. So this is like mid 90s, late 90s. Um, and so, but I find that TCKs, and I have no idea how old you are, but I know that TCKs who are younger than me anyway, have a good because they've they've kind of heard especially if they're in the international setting but yeah how did you for you did you yeah was, how'd you navigate so the, the, the term wasn't there when i was uh in school in my high school but it was there when i went to university i think we had a really forward thinking calvin attracts a lot of students from all over the world and mm-hmm. so you know the, the people who do the international student activities and so on and so forth they'd read up on it and wanted to yeah. make sure they included and it was a good thing they included yeah. U.S. passport holders who also lived abroad. That was so huge. Key. That is so yeah. key. I just, yeah. I just told a group somewhere, one of the higher ed organizations, y'all, that's the number one thing a university could do is include, because I was an, a U.S. passport holder, and y'all wouldn't include me in the international ori- orientation, but I'd been out of the country almost eight years. So, right. yeah, 
anyway. Yeah. All right. So yes, I was included. And so that's, that was the beginning of, for me, of kind of processing the identity. But before that, it was more of like just survival. That's the way to describe yeah. my upbringing, I guess, or, you know, how I had to adjust. I obviously don't remember much when I was, you know, uh, when I first moved to Ghana. I do remember having an American accent. One thing I do remember <laughs> is about accents, actually. Yeah. That for some people, you know, they're able to like just put on different accents or whatever have you. But for me, I think there was something in my survival instinct that was like, I need to mimic whatever I'm doing in the place that I am. And then yeah. I need to, the other stuff is just dead to me. So if you ask me to put on like my old accents, I can't do that, which is actually to my wife's displeasure. Cause she's like, what? You had a British accent. And like, you know, you can't just put that on for me right now. <laughs> like I would really appreciate it. I'm like, nope, sorry. Nope. Uh, um, but you know, in any case it was like, you know, it had a American accent coming into Ghana. And so then I was, that needed to change. So I switched that up. Then when we moved to Kenya, you know, had some kind of blended Ghanaian Kenyan accent and then, you know, moved to the UK and then that kind of influenced my accent as well. And then moved to the university in the US and within my freshman year, first year. Yeah. It's that was it. And now it's Americanized. That was it. And and I can't go back. And so each place, uh, and I, that probably sums it up really is, you know, sometimes yeah. I use the word chameleon. Um, if I was in a place, I would have to study the place, you know, take time, be a bit more introspective of what the social dynamics are. Yeah. And then try to survive those dynamics, you know, not necessarily, you know, do everything everybody else is doing, but how do I still make sure to kind of, yeah, to get the best or the most out of the setting in which that I find myself? And I think that's probably a life lesson that continues for me to this day. That if I'm in a new place, well, this is just where I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have to learn the the rules and then figure out how I'm gonna exploit them to my advantage. That can I tell you? That's a great metaphor with the accents. Actually, the, the, the more you think about it, I'm like, I I feel like kind of the same. Where I sort of picked up a little bit of accents because we're trying to blend in, right? You're not trying to stand out as much, but the the thing is, I think what's hard is. Once you have the American accent, that seems to be the one that no one can really get rid of. Because literally, I did an right. interview before this, and, and it was so funny. He didn't even grow up in the U.S., grew up somewhere <laughs> else, was in the U.S. for a short time. And he's like, when I went back to, when I went back to, you know, my home country, I somehow sounded American, even speaking in the native tongue, right? Yeah. And and he's European. And so that the American one seems to be, whenever anyone gets a hint of it, it just, that's it. So no matter no matter what it is. And even and I, I have found that even people who are who are not American, who don't who don't sound American to me, they still sound American to the people in their country because they've absorbed <laughs> Yeah. No, that's yeah. a that that's a wonderful analogy. I want to kind of bring it to modern day and and as as you've talked about it, you are obviously in education. You've been in education for a long time. Um and I I think for most people, and it's funny because we're recording now and it's April. <laughs> and so we're about, whew, I don't know, 14 months, 15 months. It depends on when you start counting the pandemic. <laughs> um, technically, maybe December of 2019 was when we really should have been paying attention. But but um, in addition to that, you know, they we, we're, we're, we've been looking at, at least in the United States, what we call a twin pandemic. So first was 
the actual COVID, but then also dealing with some significant diversity, inclusion, racism issues, especially that was sparked by the murder of George Floyd. And so we are now actually just a couple of days removed from the verdict uh, in the case of the officer who was charged with his murder. And, and one of the things, you know, I, I think all of us saw kind of this reaction and is I can honestly say globally, because I've had people on this podcast who are from all over different places. And, you know, I have folks from France and, and from parts of Asia and other parts of Europe and, and Latin America who talked about sort of the, the response, not only just what was happening in the U.S., but what was happening in their own countries. But one of the things that, I, you know, I think we've all seen is sort of this conversation and reckoning around racism, particularly anti-Black racism, but also racism in general and diversity and inclusion. And that obviously has not um, missed the international ed space, which of course you were in. And, you know, I, I honestly, I think everyone already knows I have some thoughts about the international <laughs> ed space. I say, you're laughing. I say this because I know there are people listening to this podcast who have no idea what I'm talking about, but but there are people who are in international ed who are like, oh, you have thoughts. And 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 I always say, I just have thoughts as a TCK who went through international schools. And and I and as an educator in general, and I always want to see these schools be the best and the safest that they can be. And so one of the things that you and I were talking offline that we've seen is this massive discussion coming almost it feels like from different angles about racism and about justice and about diversity and i am very curious just in your role just what you've sort of seen kind of in this aftermath of what happened in may of last year yeah it's very interesting i'm thinking about okay <laughs> sum this yeah. up um because we've seen a lot um but uh yeah, if I put myself back to that time period, as you've said, you know, you have thoughts about your experience. You know, I certainly have thoughts about my own experiences internationally, as well as thoughts about what I've seen, you know, when I would travel to these international schools or, you know, when we work uh, in these different settings, uh, hosting events at these places. And, you know, like any place that kind of, an elite magnet is obviously kind of uh, I, the only way to describe it is none other than whiteness, you know, this kind of uh, striving for an ideal, which seems to be um, kind of encapsulated in Western, you know, white Western thinking. And it's something that schools don't really, they really didn't reckon with. It's not something that they, wanted to address, probably because most of the staff are white, probably because the leadership are white. So it's it's not something that's necessarily on the front of the radar screen, but it's glaringly obvious when you look at the difference between the diversity that you see in a lot of student bodies at international schools. And then you compare that to the people who are educating them. And it's not the case yeah. for every school. There are definitely exceptions. I know schools that are like the school that I went to in Kenya, for example, or yeah. other places, you know, where you really see, you know, a much larger diversity in staff. 
but there's still, you know, when it looks like when you look at the curriculum, when you look at a variety of other factors, there's still this push towards let's get you into some kind of Western um, outcome. So, for example, for me, I work in the higher ed area. So we're trying to get you to the United States, Australia, UK, Canada, you know, certain countries yeah. for university. Because it's, you know, it's the ideal. So anyway, that's always been underpinning the water. Yeah. It's been in the water, yeah. the whiteness. And then the George Floyd incident happens. Obviously, for those of us, you know, who are uh, black or of color more generally, we've probably been a bit clued in to these things. You know, right. they've been happening. You know, I, I remember crying my heart out when uh, I saw a video for Philando Castile. I think that was the last time I could see a video like the right. whole way through. I was like, okay, you know, like these things are just, they just got too heavy for me. So, you know, but, and that particular year, you know, things had been happening, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey had been uh, shot and I jog every, almost every other day. And so, you know, that was def definitely something that just was weighing heavily on me. So these, you know, as things were starting to pile up in the United States, the rhetoric, everything, then George Floyd gets killed. And then I'm walking into meetings with folks who are saying, you know, things like, okay, you know, that's really sad what's happening in the United yeah. States, you know, that's pretty much an American yeah. problem or whatever have you. And you just think, whoa, you guys are uh, missing yeah. the boat here. That this is the major structural problem that like, we're very much products of, you know, the water that we're all yeah. swimming in. And we have to reckon with this. And so that really prompted me to become vocal about it. And I found out I wasn't the only one, you know, right. in the process. A bunch of international school students were speaking up. Other staff were speaking up. Petitions were going up about international schools need to pay attention to this. And obviously, that was in the context of a larger global yeah. outcry. As you said, you know, places like France and, you know, all over the world, there were protests taking place. And so that the, the grotesqueness of the George Floyd murder just touched a nerve finally, where we could explicitly talk about anti-blackness, explicitly talk about yeah. racism in a different way. So that's what changed, I guess, when I look back to that time. And, and, and once that changed and there was an openness to actually listen, we have seen, you know, quite a few results or, well, maybe at least I should say openness <laughs> right. to dialogue and, you know, right. schools, some schools really at the forefront of change that we can really applaud and so on. There's definitely a long road ahead, you know, lots more that needs to be done. But what I am thankful for kind of a year out from all of this is now we're at a place where schools are talking about how this should become uh, kind of a priority Obviously, like I said, not every school. When you're talking about such a culture of whiteness, there's still many schools that are very much resistant to this kind of yeah. uh, talk. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, but it's much more. Uh, I like that we're in a more open place than we were before. I, I think you 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 hit on a couple of things that I that I have always, or at least I've been talking about. Number one, the structural problems because fundamentally we have to understand how and why these schools were built and that purpose and vision can change. This is with anything, right? And, and, and that who you were serving and who you were trying to serve. And, and we've seen this in international schools where in some countries where they are, they're international in the sense of the curriculum, 
but there's there might be a large local population or you know let me say large local passport holder population as well as internet as students who don't hold passports from that country there we're starting to see the fact that you know even when we're when we're sending kids out because i've i've always and i'm particularly in the k12 space particularly you know when people say you know, by nature, we're diverse, we're inclusive because we're an international school and, and we, we hold all these values. And I always say, once again, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make true global, inclusive global citizens or are you just trying to make really good Westerners? And, and sometimes that kind of hits people because I'm like, no, but let's be honest, if, if your leadership and your curriculum and your activities <laughs> and your structure is Western, irrespective of the student body that is there. And then you are, let's be honest, you want to get them into some of the quote, quote, best universities in the world. And you're typically looking at the US, UK, Canada, Australia, <laughs> right? You need to reckon with, are you trying to make good Westerners? Or people who are people who can fit very well into the West. Or are you trying to make citizens who, you know what, they take what they learn in this environment and they they apply it to wherever they are. And so I, I think one of my my um frustrations, I probably say this on every podcast with an educator from international school, so I'll keep saying it because it's my podcast. Um, is that I think it's always problematic when you have schools in, in specific regions and leadership and or teaching staff does not reflect that. So how can I be in an international school in sub-Saharan Africa and I'm not seeing at least one leader or someone in a position of authority that maybe looks like the local population or just is it just from the U.S. or Canada it happens to be white. That is not to say that there are not great educators who fit that profile. It's just to say, if you want to be inclusive and global, I mean, it shouldn't just be the student population, right? Absolutely. A hundred percent agree with that. Uh, to me, the best way to put a, a, to, to, to think of it is, this new ter- the term that we now hear being thrown about about the global majority <laughs> that you know we should we shouldn't be talking about minorities you know like we're part of the global mi- majority those of us who are of color and if that's true then how can you tell me statistically <laughs> that the outcome would be that the leadership in these you know international schools would not reflect what is the global majority? It doesn't right. make any sense. Right. And I mean, I mean, and I, I know you've seen this, a, a number of this too is also the recruitment, right? And I've, I've, I've listened to educators who've talked about their frustration, particularly educators who are not from the West and not, you know, there, you know, there are ways to write the job description so that you can scream, you know, my favorite English has to be your native language. Well, I'm like, well, here's the problem though. Right. Like <laughs> number one, if I speak four languages, I feel like I'm a win. Number two, it's not native, but I do speak it because your country colonized mine. So I don't. <laughs> so what are we defining as native? I mean, right. are we going to have this fight? <laughs> so, right. so that's the thing. I don't. Right. And and you know, there's certain credentials that you want, and I get having one and have certain credentials. But I think the other challenge, and I and I, 
I don't want to completely put this all on the schools. I just like throwing fire in the pot. Uh, is that is the I think the other challenge is that we have to admit that in some environments people are very invested in kind of this case system. And that I know that there's a concern with some schools where if it loses sort of that exclusivity, that Western exclusivity, it's not going to be as good as, you know, we assumed it would be. So, you know, on that point, that just points to how deep the racism permeates, right? Because oftentimes schools will say things like, oh, we totally want to be diverse. (laughs) But it's the parents. It's the parents who are going to question us about, like, well, how could you have these kind of educators and still call yourself an international school? Like, surely you should have people from from the West. You know, like we're we're going to lose right. our value. And, and you know, so there's this this thing, and and it's not wrong. That's the sad part right. is that you know it is true that we have been socially conditioned to value whiteness right. as a currency that, you know, somehow indicates, uh, you know, really good value, you know, and, but my issue continues to be, you know, we have a huge responsibility in education. You know, we're bringing up the next generation and we can either bring them up to continue perpetuating the same inequities that we see yeah. around us. You know, like what is education for? You know, um, does it bring quality? You know, is, is that the goal or is it bringing inequality and and we can easily create educational models that just kind of keep people in their same social strata and i think there's there's more uh i think we should aspire to more and we should aspire to more for our children even our affluent children ought to be exposed to different perspectives um points of view other students even from other socioeconomic backgrounds you know it's it's so important that um yeah for for the future of our world if we're talking about the major problems yeah. we're trying to face the most of our major problems are right. global in nature climate change um you know mass migration all these issues they're all things that require you to work across cultures across borders to to resolve and if you're only going to project one sided point of view on this then we're not we're not in the business right. of changing the world right. you know? and so to me that's that's major. If if this is truly at the heart of what a lot of international schools call mm-hmm. their mission, you know, to produce global citizens, if that's truly at the heart, then you ought to take a leadership role. You ought to go out there and get, you know, the best possible educators you can get from anywhere in the world who can actually deliver right. that education. And that's what right. you stand behind. And you put your, your stake in the ground that this is what is right for you families. And guess what? Here's all the research to show that your kid having a role model who looks like them is actually going to be more fulfilled in their life and so on and so forth if they actually do, you know, otherwise what are we training them to see? If they see that these are their leaders, is this really what you want for your child's future? That just to think that that's the kind of leader that ought to be leading the organizations. Don't you want them to aspire to be a leader? You know? It is so fast. It's it's so fascinating to me because, child, first of all, children are resilient, and also, you know, children are young enough where they are not coming with necessarily the biases until you kind of force them on them. And so, if you take a kid and they have an educator that looks like them, 
they're not thinking, oh, my education is being devalued because this person looks like me. They're thinking, oh, cool, such and such teaches art or such and such teaches chemistry. And I really like the subject. And I, because, you know, I, I, I've said this um, when I spoke at ALOC, which is Kevin Simpson's, what's that? Um, Association of International Educational Leaders of Color. I think I got it. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, <laughs> when I spoke at the conference last year and I said, look, here's, here's two things. One, it's crazy that at this age of mine, I can't remember after going to two international schools in <laughs> Sub-Saharan Africa, having a Black teacher in a core subject or in a lead role. And, but I, I did have a teacher who I, I said was diverse before diverse was a thing. And she didn't look like she would be that person, but the, the kind of stuff that she put in the curriculum made us have an appreciation for African literature and African right because she's my English teacher and 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 she had an opportunity to do that and and I'm telling you it was not until I got I think until college like my junior year and took a specific literature class that I got that kind of African literature beyond Chinua Achebe, right? But the fact that I can, you know, I can kind of look back on fondness tells me I valued what she taught me, even though she didn't, she didn't look like me. How much more I think if you have someone who, who either does look like you, or even if they do have a different experience, because they recognize how important it is to really be global, at least in the context of where the school is, and to provide information and to provide teaching that is relevant, not just so you can, you know, do your SATs, ACTs, IBs, and whatever, but also, you know, you're in this country. It's great for you to really understand Japanese literature because you're here. It's a privilege. My hope, and and I'm thinking, especially with just the groundswell of conversation and pushback that we are going to, we are seeing these and I, and, and you talking, you are starting to see some of these changes. What I'm really fascinated though with you is, and we're talking, we've been talking a macro level, but I did have a chance to start to listen to the conversation you had with your, with your boss. <laughs> um, when it, <laughs> I was watching the YouTube video and I was like, Ooh, I like people who are brave because they did this on video. Like, <laughs> Like this is this is this is impressive. I am I am impressed. And 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 so often when I talk to black expats, and all, and it really doesn't even matter where they are from the world, there is something challenging when something is going on in your passport or home country, right? So I've talked to Nigerian expats who and SARS. Right. That was that was intense, right? Because they're abroad and they're just kind of seeing this happen. Um, obviously black American expats seeing what is, what is happening and what happened and, and how, I guess for you, were you sort of processing something like we've seen it before, like, and you're right, like Felipe Castile might've been the, I can't even remember. Like, I know I stopped if it, it was either Philando Castile or Walter Scott. One of those two was the last one. Like I, I purposely up until last week, did not even see the George Floyd, like, and then, you know, no trigger warning. And then there was something up and I was like, I'm whatever. Right. And I'm just like, stop doing this. But, but, um, I, I want to say it was the Castile murder, but it might've been Walter Scott, which for those of you who don't remember, because you know, we just kind of all follow him away. This would have been South Carolina, former vet. He was running away from the officer 
he was shot in the back. Someone, someone filmed it from across. This is why we were able to see it. Like they were across the way with the fence. So I can't remember if that was before or after <laughs> Philando, which is really whatever. But I remember seeing this going. I don't know why y'all are running this on the six o'clock news because we're basically watching someone being executed. I don't even, I don't even need the reason. I don't even need the context because it actually doesn't even really matter. Like we just watch someone run and then fall to the ground. And, and, and then I think that that officer may have gotten convicted if I remember correctly, but, but I'm wondering just for, for you, how is it trying to process yet another violent altercation? And in this case, in a part of the country that you are familiar with, and I know Michigan was your spot, but Michigan has its own, you know, (laughs) right. Trying to process. And then, and then the other part to that question is, I was very intrigued what kind of led you to sort of have that conversation with your leader about that. Well, yeah, I I think I alluded a little bit to it earlier in terms of what was going through my own head, that it was just a heavy spring with everything that was going on. I forgot to mention underlying all of that was COVID and we had gone on lockdown and we had been working from home for a long period of of time. So also on top of of the uh, wellness yeah mental wellness yeah, yeah. That, all of that that was just like oh and i um this is a happy thing but i welcomed a baby last year um in april <laughs> in april um oh, God. so you know uh my second child i have a four-year-old son and a, a one-year-old uh daughter um and so well congratulations thank you <laughs> that's good so th- it was a good thing but it was like a lot of things that were going on um and learning to adjust and juggle and like figure out how life was going to happen through all of that. So those things were kicking around my head. But then, yeah, so then the, the incident happened. Um, for me, I felt the, re- the initial discussions and response were somewhat tepid. You know, in general, CIS being, it, it's part of who, who the organization is. You know, we're a global organization. So making a political statement is really not something that right. is its space. And that's fine. And, uh, but in any case, having internal discussions and feeling like international schools have a role to play on issues of race, mm-hmm. like this needs to be an explicit right. thing. Um, and, um, maybe to give you a bit more context, even from my own background, I learned about anti-racism for the first time moving to Calvin University and doing my undergrad education there. I was in a floor that was like intentionally a multicultural floor. So half Caucasian students, half students of color. And we did a lot of, workshops and, you know, come together type of sessions to process these things. So I'd been thinking about these paradigms for a while and thinking, why don't these paradigms exist or are part of the conversation in international education? It mm-hmm. needs to happen. And so finally, after maybe, I don't know, it was maybe a week or so that this had happened, I thought, I need to write something. <laughs> I can't just be silent, you know, like I need to put my thoughts on paper because I don't think they're coming through when I'm sharing them in the meeting mm-hmm. space. So I just, one weekend, just hammered down my thoughts, sent it to a couple people to proofread, and I was like, I'm going to share this, and I don't know if I'll have a job after this. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, I think it needs to be said. So I'm just going to do it and see what happens. Right. So I shared it, um, and, you know, with, with uh, my boss, Jane Larson, who I respect a lot in terms of how she responded. So, you know, I was just like, you know, this is my thoughts. You know, I if, I think this should be published, but, you know, I don't know what you think. 
So and she's like, mm-hmm. no, we need to publish this right away. This is really important, you know. And so yeah. we put it out right away, and there was a huge response um, internationally, and so on. So that that was great. But after it was put out, she also reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I think we need to have a conversation about this, mm. you know. And yeah. so, you know, we it just had a heart to heart, and um, you know through that experience we're like you know what and this was her suggestion you know like why don't we just put yeah. put this on camera you know let's let's actually have a discussion and there were some questions there was a, a question in particular that we hadn't even talked about together which was a personal mm-hmm. question around the fact that you know these things have been going on and you know I get it you know in most cases I don't necessarily even need to be reached out to it's not me that's experiencing the personal pain but I'm the only black man in the organization you know, yeah. American and so on. And this has happened and it had taken such a global level and everything else that had been happening in my life and kicking around. And also, and, and we're all about well-being at CIS. Yeah, yeah. And we have a fairly decent relationship. And I thought, you know, wh- why didn't you actually call me Yeah. <laughs> when this happened yeah. just to check if I'm okay? You know, like there was none of that. It was just silence. Yeah. You know, and it was just bizarre. Because the world was burning, essentially, and like, <laughs> right. you know, and so I, I shared that sentiment as well. That was captured on the video you referenced, and yeah, it was it was a weird moment. But for me, um, yeah, that definitely kind of pushed uh, the conversation forward from her point of view. You know, she really kind of took uh, took it well and really thought that this is a moment that we need to pay attention to this. I told her, if, if you want to do this work, you know, first of all, you need to be willing to be vulnerable, um, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, you need to be in this for the long haul. And those are the two yeah. commitments that she was willing to make from the start and I think has been doing a good job modeling for us. And there's no way, if I didn't have that support internally, I don't think CIS would be kind of where we were. I think it would just be my lone voice, you know, saying stuff. And being yeah. frustrated. So I happened to be in a very lucky position where everything kind of converged in a way that the message went through and resonated. You are talking about the kind of that silence. And, and that's something I've sort of talked through as someone who's a career professional with folks, where <laughs> I, I, I think a lot of it had to also do with COVID, that we were all at home. So we were all collectively, almost globally, but definitely nationally in the U.S., focused on the same events because we weren't as distracted as we normally would be. So when I look at my social media in general, I can always tell when an event has happened to impacts a group of Black people because one side of my social media is just going (laughs) on fire and the other side is not. Right. Um, but because we were all at home, <laughs> it's sort of like we're all watching this in real time. And and as as you are aware, even though you're in the Netherlands, COVID's happening, George Floyd happens, the US has an election going on. It, it was just like it was a non-going, ongoing, nonstop what is going to be on my Twitter feed today was my reaction. Like it got to a point where I'm like, I don't even want to open Twitter. Cause every time I open Twitter, something weird's happened. And, and I don't, 
it, but it, it seemed like this was the first time where some people, like either people didn't know what to say if they weren't black or they were just like, they, they were, they were fearful or in some cases, I think they just kind of went on with their lives as normal, but because it was such an outrageous event with an outrageous response, right. That it kind of forced people back. And so I kind of give you props for, for actually do, you know, having that conversation and, and, and addressing it because I know that for other folks, when we talk about well-being, it's sort of like they kind of just sort of suffered in silence. It's sort of like, I can't believe all this is happening. And, and, you know, and the place that I worked, I think they did a, they did a fairly decent job, but we also have counselors on staff. Right. So <laughs> like they did a fairly <laughs> decent. So, I mean, we have counselors on staff, so they did a fairly good job and not just, not just with obviously George Floyd, but anti-Asian sentiment that had started very, very overtly. I mean, I'm sure it's always it has always been there, but it was very overt at the beginning of last year because of rhetoric. And then of course has continued on, unfortunately, with the with the shooting that occurred a few weeks ago in the Atlanta area. And so and so this idea of well being and I it, and it's it's funny as someone who works with graduate students and and well, you know, that's one of their values when they're looking for jobs well-being right now you know everyone says we have a great work life but first of all yeah. that's crap but we have a great work life we have we have great work-life balance first of all we should get rid of yeah. that term because there's no such thing as work. like you you can't make it 50 50 right. right but but everyone's like we've got a great wellness you know we've got gyms or whatever but then i think last year showed us what do you do when you stri- it's like the real world what do you do when you take seven people put them in a the house what do you do when you take away all the toys yeah. And a catastrophe happens and you have an opportunity to show that you care and love for people in their pain and in their hurt and in the struggle. And so I I say all of that to say to have a a supervisor, to have an employer, to have a boss who is willing (laughs) to hear and take that on and to come alongside. I think that's a testimony to just your your bravery and kind of having that conversation and her willingness, to be honest, because- you know, yeah, no, a lot I, of people I, would be really uncomfortable. Yeah, I definitely have to give a lot of props to Jane Larson for for doing this. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, like I've said already, like uh, it just amazes me that she would put herself out there on this issue. Like she could have just as easily, you know, even just made this an internal thing. But you know, maybe even talk to me, and like that would be the end of it. But like, yep you know, really made this like, no, we really need to look at this as a priority. Like we have a whole committee that's been set up uh, by the board that's looking at diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, and anti-racism yeah. and thinking about how CIS can uh, kind of address this. Um, we've yeah. updated our accreditation standards to be a bit more explicit yeah. on this issue. Um, and we're in the process, this committee is in the process of finalizing some recommendations that are going to go to the board for more actions that can be implemented. So this, I mean, it's better than I could have ever expected in terms of the type of response right. a leader could could give to this type of issue in an organization more broadly, as you know, because lots of other colleagues were involved as well. So a lot of respect yeah. to, to everyone who's been involved. And I, and I, you know, when people ask, when I've had conversations with international educators in terms of 
you know, how do we challenge our own leadership and do whatever? And, you know, you guys are basically doing the one thing that I always say consistently. And I'm always like, start with the accrediting, accrediting boardies. Like if you start with them, other stuff's going to get in line because quite frankly, if you want to be part of this organization, you're going to get in line. And so I, I think that it's really cool to see the response that you guys are taking. And, and obviously we've got a long way to go and there's more than enough work to do. So, so the fact that you're doing it makes me kind of hopeful for the next wave of international student graduates and, 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 and colleges. Cause I, this is definitely needed. Um, as we, as we start to pivot and, and kind of wind down, I like to do what I call, I don't even know if I have them. Um, I like to do what I call this lightning round. Sure. <laughs> so what I like to do is ask you three questions. Okay. It's supposed to be what comes off the top of your mind. These are not meant to be stressful. I always give this a disclaimer and then it ends up being stressful. Really stressful. <laughs> 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 okay. Question number one. I love my global audience. If you weren't living in the Netherlands, where would you live? Gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a funny, I, I don't know if I have an answer for you in terms of like where I would live in the sense of like um, a specific um, place. I don't think anything is realistic. And the one place that caught <laughs> so uh, realistic okay. in that I'm so, so used to moving around that I know that there's no oh, way that that okay. place is going to be the place, probably. I was going to say, Wakanda and Zamunda okay. don't exist. Let's so, do it. <laughs> scratch those. Okay. Well, honestly, if it wasn't for COVID, I, I am really fascinated with Brazil. Um, I have no idea why. I've actually never been to the country in my life. Brazil's cool. So, I've, I've been twice. It's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. So it's, you know, there are lots of black people there, obviously. <laughs> lots of history, you know, um, that, that needs to be, you know, explored and all of that. Um, and so, yeah, I would, would love to see what that is like. So if I had just had all the choice in the world, I would choose that. But of course, given current circumstances and everything that's going on there, I'm going to be waiting a while before I try Yeah, you that. need a way. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah, they, they have a situation. Yeah, exactly. Here's Here's the cool thing about Brazil. Brazil Brazil is super diverse. And I've I've been to Sao Paulo. I've been to Rio. I've been to the falls, Iwasu Falls. And Brazil was... <laughs> I, the first time I went, actually, it was a church group. The second time I went by myself, just traveling South America. And I'd come from Argentina, and it was so funny. In Argentina and Uruguay, everyone asked me if I was Brazilian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In Brazil someone swore I was their cousin. But I was like, here's the problem. I don't speak Portuguese. Do you not hear hear the words coming out of my mouth? And so so, um, I say that to say Brazil was wonderful because it just felt like, like in Rio, it just felt like I'm one of y'all. Like you don't really stick. You know, no one really sticks out because it is a diverse space. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and because of um kind of their history. And so it's it's just a cool man, I'm hoping for Brazil because it it really is, man, it's a cool place to be. Okay, so <laughs> Brazil probably ten years from exactly. now. We're gonna once, they figure, <laughs> once they figure out what they're doing. All right, that's fair. Second question. What's one piece of advice you have for uh someone who's raising a third culture kid oh man 
I mean, technically, you've got yeah, CCP. Yeah, so technically, I'm doing this right now. I'm like, help, help needed. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, don't sweat it. So I think the hardest part, perhaps, uh, maybe I'm projecting a bit, but it's probably seeing that your kid isn't going to come out with the same kind of feeling of home and everything that you might associate with your your country or your, your space. But, you know, they will figure this out. There's going to be ti- times where they might be confused about their identity and everything else. But mm-hmm. I think the best thing in terms of advice would be help them learn to talk about identity and be comfortable mm-hmm. talking about the different aspects of their identity and be proud about what that brings, the skills that they're gaining, mm-hmm. the, you know, all of these things that they bring to the world by having to navigate these different spaces. Because I think the tendency for most human beings is to box people and say like, you know, you're from here or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. kids sometimes go through life trying to understand where they fit if they don't fit that box. And it's about trying to let the kid understand that you are your box. It's about, you know, each one of us has an identity and has a unique perspective to bring and you are, you belong. Your perspective matters. And the fact that you have this multi-country upbringing and all of that is so key. I mean, it has so much to bring to the table. So I think it's about that. That's what I would say is helping uh, students really understand or, or kids understand and celebrate all aspects of the identities they've acquired. So I, and, and you said something as though, this is not the third question. This is just like a follow-up because sure. yeah. <laughs> now I have a question. So, and I mean, obviously now you're a grown man, yeah. but did your parents see you as Ghanaian? That's a great question. Uh, maybe it's different. <laughs> maybe you'll get different answers from my, from either parent, mom or dad. Yeah. But yeah, I would say they, they probably did see me as Ghanaian for a long stretch of my, most of my childhood. <laughs> and all I grew up with was when we went home, for holidays or different things, people being like, yeah, you're not, I mean, like my, you're not. like my family, like cousins and so on and so forth, always, I was always embraced by family. That was never an issue. Of course. But the moment I opened my mouth, like you, I lost my own uh, uh, tribal language. Um, I did speak it fluently as a child for a period of time, but then mm-hmm. I lost it. So, and even then it's the third most spoken language in Ghana. It's not the one that everyone speaks out in the streets right. and stuff. So even that, there's no connection there. So, so if I'm in yeah. the streets and I open my mouth, like people are like, yeah, who, you're a foreigner, you know? And so that experience yeah. always for me made me feel like I wasn't, again, I could never be a full fledged Ghanaian. And so my parents may have had that assumption that, oh, you know, cause we're in a Ghanaian family and everything, I would grow up to be yeah. Ghanaian. But yeah, that definitely changed um, for them. And, Yes, it's fascinating. Of course, I can probably go into right? way way more with this. Maybe the only thing I would end from is maybe the death knell with all of that was, you know, my choice of life partner. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm married to a white woman, so like uh, from, like, from yeah, Midwest US. And so, like <laughs> the day when I said I was dating, like that was that was a fun situation. You know, like. Uh, <laughs> I remember. Wait I think it was like my mom. You called my mom, like, "Hey, I'm dating somebody." It's like, "Oh, cool." You know, ask me a couple of questions. I think the third question was like, "She's black, right?" 
<laughs> you know what what background is she? she's black right and i'm like no. no and then there was like a nice pause on the phone and it's like okay um but definitely very supportive um but uh right. you know i think for them that was like the moment where it was like okay you know what i think i think i gone. think the same what <laughs> are you what how many children are in your in your family um i have a younger brother who is uh yeah yeah about eight years younger than me um and then I have, it's an interesting thing, like a lot of African families, you know, the definition of family is is different. Right. So it's fluid. Yeah, it's fluid. So for example, when we lived in Ghana, some of my family lives in Togo, uh, just, to, you yeah. know, colonialism. Yeah. Let's just put it this way, you know. Yeah. yeah. yeah so no, there was civil strife common. in Togo. And then there was a, you know, um, our whole family had to flee into Ghana. We had 20 people living in, in our house. So I went from an only child at that time to having like all my cousins with me, which was super fun. Gotcha. And then when we yeah, moved no. to Kenya, we ended up uh, bringing along one of my cousins, who's uh, uh, who I see as a sister, a as a sister now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So I do have an totally. older sister as well. So I have a younger brother and an older sister. Older but I have sister. to give that kind of <laughs> framing. Same, same. Exactly. Same, same. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, 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 I just asked that question because I always think it's really interesting. You know, if you were in a third culture kid as a parent. And I, I find this especially, and this is with a lot of groups, but I just am very familiar with West Africans. Yeah. It's just really funny about how parents assume, yeah, I see you as this. And I'm like, you're like the only one yeah. because they're it. like, you're good and you're right. You're no, because the, the, the general society is just like, yeah. you don't sound, you don't look. Yeah. You don't I mean, you look, but you don't walk, yeah. you don't sound, yeah. Yeah. you don't, you know, Absolutely. whatever. So. I, I love that conversation, yeah. man. Okay. Third question. What is, uh, and, and sure, you've, you've sort of talked about this, but I guess this is the final conclusion as far as international ed is concerned. Sure. Um, what's one thing that leadership can do to create a supportive environment for their students and their staff as far as diversity and inclusion? Sure. I think it is uh, implementing a kind of questioning mentality into pretty much every action, everything that you do. You know, who is not being included in the table? You know, what voices have not been heard? What is the impact on this going to have on our students' outlook on the world? You know, if you just ask yourself a few of these kind of simple questions, that should lead you to answers that hopefully would change structures, you know, whether it's with hiring, whether it's with the curriculum, whether it's the uh, service activities that you're doing, you know, it really should be about a culture of interrogation um, because we have to understand that we all have blind spots. And if we can model that level of vulnerability to question these things that we've been taking for granted, I think we're more likely to build, rebuild systems that actually are more equitable, more diverse, um, hopefully anti-racist, and uh, places that our students can thrive in. Oh my gosh! Look at you with all the help and all the responses. Actually, because you've been thinking about it, that's why, that's why, that's why you know that you know. that rolled off real easy. Because you're like, I've been thinking about it for a year now. Because it's, it's been. I mean, maybe beforehand, yeah. but now you've had a chance to stew on it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. This has been fun. I've loved hearing your story and just 
getting your perspective. Sure. And, you know, as I, as I like to let the folks know, I will throw up your social media sure. in the show notes and on our website so people can find you. But in case people are looking for you and they're listening in, where, where should they hunt you down? Uh, you could probably, yeah, you can find me in a few places. Uh, I'll probably say the easiest might be Twitter at Nunana Nyomi. Will probably be the easiest place to find me. So just my first and last name mashed together. <laughs> Simple enough. Yeah. And and if you read the name of the file that this podcast is, you could spell it if you don't <laughs> if you don't know yeah, how to co- copy paste is a wonderful thing, folks. Right. And I and I'm sure people all the time are like, um, how do you spell your name? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure that's that's an issue. But thank you again for coming on. Thank you. And hanging out. Thank you. This was so much fun. Really enjoyed it. And so, like I said, we'll have all this contact information up on the show notes on the website. Thank you again for listening and we'll catch you in the next time. All right. Bye. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at global chat pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter, or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com. 